Greetings, ladies and metal gents, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales from Outer Space, where I take stories from across the internet and read them for your entertainment. This particular story is called The Things Humans Excel At, written by Farmwitch4275. I write to the Galactic Council of the Grand Federation. This is not a greeting. It is a dire and serious warning. It pertains to humans. Humans are, well, very strange. In terms of intelligence, they rank dead center of smart and stupid. Unknown men who can direct an entire asteroid field out of the star system, mine it clean of any resources, and do it all with no help from AI or targeting systems. Those same men can't tell me how to restock a vending machine. I know a human who can't answer simple math questions like 5 plus 5, but the same man knows how to fix a fusion reactor without nothing more than a pipe wrench. In terms of combat ability, we will not use humanity's super soldiers, the legionnaires as an example here, just an average human grunt. I know riflemen that can't hit the broadside of a bar with a Gatling gun, but place a knife in their hands and not even the Mantodian Esvesserator drone can stand up to them. Adversely, find a human with a long-range weapon like the human sniper. These guys can hit a target the size of a coin two miles away in a hurricane. These same men will never hold any chance in a boxing ring. Humanity is in dead center of the sapient average. Remarkable for any species, they represent the fastest and slowest members of any race, the smartest and dumbest of any race, the hardest fighters and the weakest pacifists of any race. This is why humanity as a whole has found such unique niche within galactic society, and why everyone seems to both love them and hate them at all at the same time. This is why you can find a human in almost any position, anywhere it is easy for them to live there, or any place that agrees with their biology. They adapt to almost any situation they find themselves in. Given enough time, funding, or reason to stick around, they become indistinguishable from one's own kin by the sheer tenacity with which they engage their duties. But this is not why I am writing. I wish not to sing their praises. I come with a dire and sincere warning. Humans are far, far, far more dangerous than even they give themselves credit for. The average human. This is certain, except in one single aspect. Children. Specifically, juveniles or younglings as the rest of us call them. We are all protective to one degree or another, with our broods this much is certain. But humans take it to a whole different level. I speak specifically of one particular human, a shipmate of mine, Kerry, a human crew member I hired on the recommendation of my harbor master, an average human by all accounts. She came on board as the ship's janitor, but quickly became enamored with the crew's kids. Several juvenile, Raxus, Oksani, and a few others. And within a few weeks, she had become their de facto babysitter, as she called it. Aside from her duties of stocking vending machines and cleaning the ship, she spent her free time playing with the younglings aboard the ship. Knowing humans, we never questioned this. They were always friendly and could be trusted beyond the norm, just like any other race. I thought humans were just abnormally normal. Until... I encountered the one single aspect of humanity that puts them far above the rest of us. All of us are inferior to this one aspect by any measure possible. If Carrie's words were anything to go by in this respect, then this is something that extends to the entire species, as opposed to just a few members. If what Carrie tells me is true, then it means one of two things. We have an incredibly powerful ally or an extremely dangerous and nigh-unstoppable enemy. I prefer to think of the former, to be honest. In order to understand what is going on, I shall explain. During a routine cargo trip, my ship and its crew were hauling cargo to a human outer-world colony to trade in red spice and medical equipment. Simple stuff. We were attacked by a gang of Rathani pirates, specifically the King's Masons. Yes, those King's Masons. The kind of gang that single-handedly wiped out a Federation escort fleet and held the Rathani Queen hostage for two months. It started with the comms hail, Stand and deliver. 
they said, as their ion cannon shut our ship down, and they readied to board us. But in the space of a few minutes, the entire crew was on station, ready to fight them off. Unfortunately for, well, as it turned out, them, they skipped the main boarding ramp and decided instead to cut a hole through the cargo bay to work their way up in the ship. This put them in direct contact with her. A group of them blasted through the area, looting whatever cargo they could carry, and began to cut their way into the ship. All was going well for them as they looted the ship and broke doors open to get into personal quarters and steal any valuables. Then, one poor bastard stumbled across Carrie and the kids under her care. She stood her ground, refusing to surrender. He beat her hard. She refused to surrender. She told the kids to hide in their game of hide-and-seek. He tried to grab one of the kids as it vanished into the maintenance hatches. She stopped him just in time, allowing the child to escape. He said an offhand comment about how he would make the juvenile-flavored soup. Carrie, with a wild banshee scream of hatred, rage, and anger, jumped on him, caught him off guard by the sudden attack. He was unable to do anything about it, as with lightning speed, she pinned him to the ground. And then, with naught but a bare hands, began ripping his teeth out. I will beat this so there is no room for ambiguity. With her bare hands, she started ripping his teeth out. Following her enraged banshee wailing and the Rathani warrior brood-coding screams of agony, the other warriors soon followed, only to meet similar fates. Gary began to cut a merciless swath of death and sadistic insanity as she severed legs, cut off heads, and beat soldiers to death with her own severed limbs. It was during this massacre that I and many crew members saw for the first time the sight of a Rathani warrior experiencing the emotion fear. Gary found one Rathani warrior and stole one of the grenades during her rampage. She shattered the poor bastard's jaw, jamming it open. She pulled the pin on the grenade and shoved it in his gob. The look on that poor bastard's face will haunt me to the day that I die, as he helplessly claws at his own belly to try and get the grenade out. I will never forget the sheer terror in his eyes as the grenade exploded. Being showered in the guts and bone shrapnel from one of their own kind caused the rest of the pirates to flee the scene. The ship managed to dislodge itself before escaping, narrowly avoiding Kerry's hurling of expletives and curses at them as they ran back to the void with their tails between their legs. Kerry returned to a modicum of normal as the ship was restored to basic functionality. We made an emergency jump to the human colony world and broadcasted an emergency. Human feats were on us within minutes. Kerry, however, suddenly seemed normal. The look in her eyes faded, her breathing slowed, and her expression calm. She cried out, Ollie, Ollie Oxenfree, I give up. The pizza's on me. Within moments of this exclamation, the younglings, all unharmed and untouched, suddenly appeared and tackled her to the ground as if she was a dainty feather. She wrestled with them before they all claimed victory and with a concerted effort carried her to the mess hall. We told the humans that helped us of everything Carrie did, questioning if she was okay. They simply shrugged and explained that what Kerry did was, quote, too lenient. I've spent the better part of the last 200 hours engaging in research this topic, and all results are the same. Humans, regardless of the species in their care or even vicinity, are psychotically protective of any juvenile under their care or even in their vicinity. Humans with no connections to any people involved will, without hesitation, on sensing a juvenile of any species in danger, will rush headfirst into that danger with no regards to their own safety. It has occurred too many times on and off record to be any kind of coincidence. This effect seems to be dramatically more pronounced with their own children, or even family and friends. You, my counsel, may use this information however you please. I, however, must warn you to the absolute degree. Do not, under any circumstances, harm a child of any kind in the presence of a human, period. You risk horrible, merciless death at the hands of a creature whose parental instincts are so mind-numbingly strong they defy 
all logic, reason, and even biology. Under those average bodies and within those average minds lies an unstoppable beating heart of the single most dangerous force in the universe. Parenthood. You have been warned. Sincerely, Praxis Thran, captain of the Lightbringer cargo ship, Human Space Epsilon Station. End of story. Basically, run. Written by Catfish21SM. So, I have to ask General Zazark. Your species seems to have entered the space stage in the middle of a great tribulation. The worst war in recorded history. How is it that your species not only survived, but remained free during this time? When you were just a new budding civilization. Ah, yes. You mean the war for the precursor attacker? If I'm correct, that's how the Galactic Council grew so advanced so quickly. They analyzed and tried to replicate precursor attacker. Uh, I hear they didn't get very far, though. Oh, yes, sir. Uh, uh, to answer your question, it's because of our squishy little friends. Um, yeah, what now? Yeah, so early in our development, before we even discovered space travel, we met a small bipedal species. Uh, they only grew about two clickets tall, barely larger than a hatchling, and were covered in all squishy flesh material rather than a hard carapace. Some of the best species on our home world uh, look like that. At first, they were assumed to be a new discovery, relatives of the Peacolly. However, you can imagine our surprise when one of them began talking. It used a translation to us. It said that our planet was quite beautiful and that it enjoyed the scenery. It offered to make a trading agreement with us. We were unsure what such a small creature could offer us, but we accepted. It offered us knowledge and food when we needed it. In exchange, we quartered off several sections of territory on our home world, designated them as nature reserves. We did this because the squishies, as we called them, seemed to enjoy visiting these areas, and were quite disappointed when we developed a location that they enjoyed. We wanted to keep them around because we advanced rather quickly with their help. Furthermore, they saved us from several world wars by providing advice, meditation, and resources where needed. They were truly the best of friends. We asked them what they called themselves, but they merely replied that we could not pronounce it, and they liked being called Squishy, so the name stuck. Then, uh, shortly after we began exploring space, a representative of the Atraxi appeared. They gave us an offer, surrender, and they would kill us quickly and painlessly. They needed our planet's resources for their war, apparently. The large swaths of untouched land that we had left for the squishies contained ample resource deposits, some of which were quite rare and sought after. Fortunately, a representative from the squishies was there to help us negotiate, though negotiation might be the wrong word for it. It was more like a threat, really. Uh, my vocals wouldn't let me translate properly, and you need to see it in order to get the full effect. Luckily, we have it recorded. Uh, watch this. A recording appears, showing an average well-dressed human in Hawaiian-style clothing walking up to the massive eyeball alien. Hello there, I'm Admiral John of the Independent Earth Fleet. I am a high-ranking squishy officer, though I suppose our species' real name is human. You see, we're in a bit of a dilemma right now. You seem to be trespassing on territory of our ally, of whom we have a defensive pact. You uh, also seem to be making some uh, <laughs> uh, rather bold claims and threats. Uh, fortunately for you, I am on vacation and would really like to avoid all the paperwork that would normally be required for this type of situation. With our friend's permission, of course, we will let this whole thing slide if you just leave. And uh, who do you think that you are to demand us to leave? Oh, oh, sorry, uh, we never actually met your species before. We, we tend to keep to ourselves, you see. After a great extermination, we've pretty much been isolationists. Uh, 
I don't want to cause too much damage after all. I'm sure you recognize this, however. Holding up a small one-like device, letting out some strange buzzing noises, the Atraxi spoke up. That, uh, is that precursor tech and uh, fully functional at that? When did you get that? Reply immediately. Oh, yes, yes, sir. Uh, so that's what you call them, uh, we refer to them as Answer. One of the hive minds that tried to conquer the galaxy a few hundred thousand years ago. They had another name for us as well. I'm sure you've seen it in some of their records. Uh, the one thing that they were good at was keeping detailed records of their battles. We never really got the opportunity to properly introduce ourselves to them, unfortunately. So they ended up coming up with some pretty silly nicknames for us. Uh, they called us the Oncoming Storm, the Bringers of Darkness, uh, the Great Filter. Well, uh, that was before we exterminated them. The little pests had a coming after all. Uh, oh, don't worry, we're nicer than that. They're still alive on their own world, just forbidden from leaving ever again. It seems that you lot are currently entangled in a war to get your hands on some of their tech. Well, uh, that doesn't really concern us. Uh, I'm just letting you know that this tech is ancient to us. Well, it was pretty outdated when we destroyed the ants, so uh, take that as you will, I suppose. Uh, anyway, I'm sure you're getting rather bored of my speech, so I'll keep this simple. Uh, what I'm trying to say is, uh, basically, uh, run. The video cuts out and the sky is changing color as dot after dot leaves the atmosphere and enters hyperspace. End of story. Story number two, Duel Between True Masters, written by Random3x. Stepping into the ring with a crowd of onlookers chanting his name was a human who looked like he'd be in his late forties. His hair already gray and a worn look on his features, but his eyes were as sharp as any blade as they scanned the crowd for him. The crowd under his gaze parted, revealing his opponent. Like the human, he showed his age, but unlike his opponent, he was an elf. Millennia had passed in his lifetime, and at that age, he'd become fearless, someone without equal amongst even other races. It is often said that a duel between true masters is over before it even begins, that those at the pinnacle would be able to know who the winner would be instinctively. Human, are you certain you wish to continue this? The elven master of the blade asked, his voice wheezing with age. I, uh, ah, sure as I'll ever be, the man replied, nodding while flashing a crooked smile, which the elf returned kind. Both competitors for the title Greatest Blade have agreed to the duel. Victory can only be claimed by death or submission. The bout shall begin when the bell is rung. A loud, boisterous voice announced from the raised platform overlooking the arena. Both men looked up at the announcer, nodding to confirm that they understood the rules. With the duel set to begin, the onlookers all retreated to the stands to see what would be history in the making. This was the first time in history that the greatest blade, as he was known, had accepted a challenge from a human. A loud clang rang out as the bell rang to indicate the start. Immediately, the air froze around the two men as they locked eyes with one another. The tension was such that even their swords may struggle to cut it. The human grinned, letting the world around him fade. All the noise and distraction now gone. Only the elf remained. Both men drew their respective swords, the elf holding his thin blade down by his leg, while the human held his up in front of his body. With an explosion of energy, the human burst forward towards the elf, surprising him with the sheer speed of his movements, bringing the sword down in a wide slash. He watched as the elf merely twitched his wrist, and he brought up his own sword to deflect the blow, responding with a rapid slash, cutting the man's throat. The man blinked his eyes, and he was back where he had started. Guess you're as good as they say you are, the man grumbled. The elf smiled back. I'm glad to be up to your measure. Shifting his foot forward about an inch, the elf sprung forward, this time delivering a truly terrifying flurry of blows that the human was barely able to deflect let alone defend against. The flurry continued for minutes till the elf began to tire, his breathing growing ragged. Seeing his opening, the human lunged forward with the tip of his sword, piercing the elf's chest and cutting his heart in two. The elf looked down at the blade through his chest before blinking, 
returning to where he'd started. Both men stood still as statues, only their eyes darting in every direction as they planned their next move, only to see the phantom of their motion be met and bested. I dare say that we are rather evenly matched, uh, it would be a coin toss who would win. Aye, oh, yeah, it does seem that way, the man nodded. I will admit that I am rather cowardly and don't enjoy having such even odds. I've experienced an age since I last met a foe that might actually best me. The man nodded. Agreed. But say that we settle this not with blades, but with beverages. Settled with a contest of tricks, well, uh, I ain't gonna say no to that. The crowd had been watching the exchange were left thoroughly confused. After the bell had rung, all that had happened from their perspective was that the human had wiggled his sword a little, and the elf had shifted his foot forward. Oi, what about the fight? A voice in the crowd angrily shouted. The man looked at the elf. Draw! The elf nodded in response. Yes, referee, it is a draw. It has been centuries since I have met someone who would be able to block my attacks. It would be a shame to lose such an interesting foe as soon after meeting. With that statement, both men sheathed their blades, leaving the audience even more confused. They had come to see a fight between two true masters, only to see nothing at all. But the masters knew. They, like all true masters, could see several steps ahead, like in a game of chess. No fool would continue a game where they would be ultimately checkmated. End of story. Don't insult their ships. Written by XR-171. Incident report, Space Station Yuvok Sector 171, Neutral Space, 3.14.15, Standard Interstellar Date. At approximately 25.05 station time, at Lars Crash Landing Intoxicant Station, a group of Terrans from the TRS Dauntless entered. They immediately began to exhaust the station's supplies of ethanol. Bothered by this, a maintenance crew, Shop 31 Delta Shift, began to suggest that Terrans were simply shaved rather than evolved primates. This was met with a chorus of laughter, what can only be described as monkey sounds, and offers to buy the maintenance crew their next round of drinks. This only infuriated the crew, who then began to suggest that the Terrans were the least attractive race that they had ever encountered. This was met with their senior leader, senior chief bosun mate, Reg Barkley, responding in the affirmative that even his own hand fell asleep on him. Again, more laughter. Not knowing that they weren't welcomed by the local customers, the Terrans then began to try start conversations with the maintenance crew and was spurned at each chance. At approximately 26.32 station time, another crew from the Dauntless arrived. This crew from the engineering department led by Master Chief Sonia McRoge. They joined their fellow Terrans who had informed them that the local hate us because they ain't us. Master Chief McRoach then offered to buy an entire bar their next drink. This was met by maintenance crew leader Rock, stating he would rather drink plasma exhaust than accept anything from crew monkeys flying a ship that would normally be hauled off a slag from a proper foundry. At station time 2647, Terrans suddenly put their drinks down and stood up. Master Chief McRoach then stated, Honey, don't you think you should uh, rephrase that? With the Rock replied there, you're right, I shouldn't demean slag like that. Before anyone could react, Master Chief McRoach had landed on Punch and Rock's metal thorax, deflating his lungs, minor incapacitation. Maintenance crew 31D then all stood up. At this point, it was every Terran versus every Firelag. Terrans were able to use a very high grav world strength and death world constitution to great effect by picking up most Firelag and simply throwing them into the corridor. Most Firelag, under the influence of ethanol's numbing effects, had their own natural stimulant hormones went back inside. They attempted to surround and isolate individual Terrans, which almost began to work, until Senior Chief Barkley yelled, Phalanx! At which point the Terrans lined up with their backs to the rear wall. Fortunately, the establishment owner had already initiated the furniture lockdown, preventing anything from being used as a shield, spear, or a missile. The Terrans lined up shoulder to shoulder and began to methodically push, punch, and throw every foil into the corridor. As the last one was thrown out, station security, alongside ship security, shore patrol, arrived and began to coordinate taking the two groups into custody. Incident ended at 0002 station time. Aftermath. Damage consisted of several serving glasses and hazmat removal in form of circulatory fluid of both species, primarily foilic. 
both of which the crew of the Dauntless had already paid for. Maintenance Crew 31D is being sent for non-judicial punishment, with recommended sentence of three days confinement to quarters, unreduced rations, and reduced pay for two months. Additionally, regardless of sentence, they are being required to take a course in interspecies diplomacy, with an emphasis on death world races. As the Dauntless does not directly report to us, I cannot with any certainty state what their punishment was, but I have been informed by a senior official that they were torn a new one. My concerns were dismissed when I reminded her about the Confederacy's ban on cruel punishments. Nevertheless, those crew members have not boarded the station since then. Recommendations Fortunately, station security has been able to handle the foiler crew members with ease, but I doubt they could have handled the Terrans had they chose to resist. I recommend that we hire a contingent of them for security. After checking with head of security on station Kovac, they stated that 42% decrease in violence after they did this. It is also recommended that insulting Terran ships be added to the list of banned conversation topics when one of the ships is in port. Final recommendation. Anytime it is known a Terran ship will dock, all facilities will increase their orders of ethanol, skin marking ink, and nutritional eggs by at least 250% per day to ensure both local and guest consumption. Chief Inspector Reichel Jovak Station. End of story. Story number two, War on a Death World, written by Catfish21SM. It is an embarrassing story, but I suppose that I lost our bet, so I'll let you in on it. It started about 300 human years ago. The humans hadn't even discovered warp technology yet. We thought that it would be an easy victory. According to the Galactic Standard Regulation at the time, you could challenge another party to war in order to attempt to conquer a claim. If the war is won, then the claim will be made yours, and any population living on the planet will become your property. The issue with this is that you had to risk something of equal magnitude. That is not to say equal value, but equal equivalent value. In other words, since we were threatening to take over every planet the humans occupied, and their entire species, we had to essentially bet the same thing. Even if it was only one planet and a small occupying population, we had to bet something of equal magnitude our entire empire. Of course, victory was a shoe-in. With our advanced technology and tactics, we had no chance of losing. Furthermore, according to galactic standard regulation, the attacking party can declare a maximum of up to three separate invasions, so long as the declaration is made up front. While one would be more than enough, our strategists wanted to perform all three. That way, our victory could not be later protested, and it would ensure victory in the event of an unexpected natural disaster. It was a death world after all. No members of our species had ever stepped foot on a death world before, and we never had any reason to. However, this one in particular was rich in many valuable resources and was a major temptation to our empire, one we could not possibly pass up. And so we underestimated, quite gravely, I might add, how deadly a death world could actually be. According to galactic regulations, the challenged species could decide the time and place of the battles. It had to happen within one standard cycle of their planet around its host star, except in some special situations. However, it was meant to give them a slight advantage. This system was in place to prevent a large intergalactic wars and to save the Galactic Union money from having to recruit its own massive military. The invader party would be given three options to respond to this formal declaration. They could either accept the declaration of war, offer reprimands of equal value to the disputed claim, or surrender the disputed claim. They chose to accept the declaration. They informed us to have our forces ready. They would assign the location and give us one day notice before the battle began so that we could be in place. We watched as they evacuated their civilians from the battle zones in anticipation of their notice. We were morons. Out of morons! The first location that they chose was a large peninsula at the southern end of one of their northern continents. They called the area Florida. The notice came to us in the middle of a heavy storm. Our ships landed and 10,000 troops departed. We had to hold the area for 24 hours to declare victory. We thought that it would be an easy victory, especially considering that there was not a single human present. The storm was what the humans refer to as a hurricane. Not a single soldier returned alive. The next battle was only a few months later in a region that the humans refer to 
as the Arctic. It was in the middle of a season that the humans call the winter. Again, not a single human was present, and again, not a single soldier returned alive. The final battle was in the middle of what the humans call the dry season. In the middle of a place the humans call uh, Australia. There our soldiers learned the true meaning of the word death world. The recordings show giant poisonous insects called spiders attacking our soldiers, along with various other plants and animal life. Then there were the emus. Oh, the emus! Apparently, according to human history, even the humans themselves lost at least two separate wars against the emus. That was by far the most devastating loss, as not only did none of our soldiers return alive, but our dropships were infested with various dangerous organisms and had to be abandoned along with the personnel. It was the humans' right to declare our slaves and conquer our entire species. However, the humans were far kinder than we would have been. They let us off easy. We had to share our technology and information with them. We had to sign a defensive agreement lasting indefinitely with them. We had to help them find several suitable worlds to colonize, and we would never vote against them in the Galactic Council. Little did we know that this, our greatest loss, would turn into our greatest victory. This led to our species forming a close bond with the humans, and over time, we became their best trading partner and their closest ally. You ask how we gained the second most powerful position in the galaxy. It was because we, like morons, made the decision to send more than 30,000 lives to their deaths on a death world, and returned, gained the greatest ally anyone could ever imagine. End of story. War games are still games, after all. What? Kick us out? Loudly exclaims Colonel Oscar from the discomfort of his ship. Hold on, let me finish before you start one of your rambles about the state of the coalition. Tries to argue the Brian military attaché from the comfort of his own office. Great! No, fantastic! I can't wait to see one of those unthinkable plans set in motion. I will immediately contact the Senate and inform them that the Operation Star Blitz is a go. Hold on, I gotta make a quick call. He says as he takes out an old-fashioned bright red dial phone from his desk drawers. Oh, come on. Not that again. Sir, this is Colonel Oscar. I regret to inform you that the coalition of the first arm has officially kicked us out. Uh, sorry, uh, are, are they threatening our off-world interests? Uh, yes, sir, absolutely. Not only that, but our way of life and what we stand for. Yes, sir, I understand. I will extend your orders to all the units intended for Operation Star Blitz. <sighs> I have no time for this childish behavior, Colonel. Also, sir, if I may speak freely, I would also put on standby some additional forces. Given their current position and readiness, I suggest deploying the 15th, 16th, and 20th Star Fleets in a support role with the 8th and 12th Star Fleets as strategic reserves. This way, we should be outnumbered only 20 to 1 giving us the clear advantage. Uh, are you done? I was about to say how Terrans are not mature enough, and that's why some members want to kick you out. Comments the Brian clearly annoyed, to which the human simply smiles and points at the red phone, this time with less playful intent. Before you improvise yourself as a poor excuse of a comedian yet again, please listen to what I have to say. Taking the situation more seriously, the colonel nods in approval and assumes a more appropriate posture. Let's start from the beginning. I'm sure you will remember how about two months ago I asked you to send an elite team of your bestest soldiers to take part in a super-secret training exercise along with other Tier 1 units from the Coalition. Well, it's those guys' fault. God damn those idiots! What do they do? Wait, let me guess. Did they lose some extremely valuable military equipment, or did they break extremely valuable military equipment? Don't tell me that they impregnated some extremely valuable military equipment. <sighs> if I had to bet, I would say that it was Lance Corporal Rodriguez. That bastard could make a rock bear his child if he really put his back into it. What? No. How did you even come up with that last one? Says the Brian both curious and horrified, to which the human just replies not to ask. Going back to the main topic, 
I received numerous reports claiming that your soldiers during the joint special training have been, uh, insensitive, unprofessional, and uh, xenophobe, apparently. It is also described how humans have allegedly humiliated, ridiculed, and treated with extreme dishonor allied teams. This is why a couple military representatives used this accident as an excuse to kick you out, while others expect severe punishments to the individuals involved. So they just misbehave and started calling names. You guys are being too soft. Take these complaints to the sergeant major of the army or whatever. I'm ending the call. Now come on. You aren't you stop being a child for one minute. The whole reason why I'm even talking to you is because after reading the reports, I'm sure there has been a great misunderstanding. I know your men, and while they could and should have acted in a better way, they never explicitly went against orders or broke any rules during the exercise. Sensing honesty in the tone of his voice, the colonel takes a deep breath and grants him a bit more of his time. I need to tell you about the special training. It's a top military secret, but it's not like we can keep it hidden much longer. A couple of years ago, we found an encrypted message left behind by our ancestral forerunners, the enigmatic beings believed to have gifted life to our planet. We know very little of them other than the fact that they left our star system many thousands of years before our space age. Oh, so you're excited because you found a raggedy-ass piece of paper left by your star daddy who went out to get a carton in the Milky Way? Did he leave an address or something? Maybe the reason he hasn't come back yet is because he's still looking for the Siggy Way. Why do I even bother? Listen... The message, once deciphered, did contain some coordinates, but it was not their home planet. We found a remote dwarf exoplanet. A bit more interested, the human secretly starts recording the conversation. On the surface of which sits a gigantic hollow dome of obvious artificial construction. Well, to be precise, the dome is just the tip of a literal iceberg, as right under it there is an industrial complex of truly monstrous size. From factories producing nanomachines and drones to cold fusion reactors and gravity generators, everything is controlled and operated by an equally impressive hypercomputer of near limitless computational power. Now we're talking. Wait until you can hear what it can do. Thanks to the computer, we can change and manipulate almost everything that lies under the dome, which in itself is quite a massive, with a diameter of 100 kilometers and a height of 10 the interior is plated by an extremely advanced crystal-infused alloys of unknown origin that can create images or background light sources by turning on in certain patterns. Basically, fancy LEDs. The hypercomputer can directly affect gravity through means as of yet unknown, on a macroscopic level as well. It can also control the swarms of nanomachines and utility drones to perform numerous tasks such as maintenance and repairs. But more interestingly, the microscopic robots can heal damaged biological tissues and revive any individual from any species, short of catastrophic nerve damage. These can even bond together and assume any form, color, and density, and when programmed accordingly, they act as a single entity to mimic anything that moves. With a bit of time, one can even terraform the surface, the atmosphere, and set weather patterns giving us near and limitless possibilities. Impressive. Very nice, but I guess you're not using this oasis of life or what was originally intended, right? Says the colonel, having already understood what the alien was about to say. Yes. As you might imagine, we are currently using it to perform combat tests to push our soldiers to their very limits while maintaining the highest level of safety and realism. Twenty-four teams, all different coalition species, went through several exercises and simulated operations, mostly against drones mimicking potential enemies. I get the gist of it. What did my men do? Taking a pause, the Brian pulls out a tablet and briefly reads the reports. Having gone through the most important ones, he puts it aside and continues. Your uh, soldiers performed well. Ah, too well. They were so efficient and effective in their work that they often ended up with the top scores. Some of the more prideful species weren't really happy as your men completed many assignments in record times. Well, apparently... Not breaking a sweat. The colonel attempted to hide a grin as he stares at the attaché with the distinctive look of superiority. If that wasn't enough, your soldiers started joking about the ease at which they were completing the training simulations. 
stating, for example, and I quote, just like the simulations, that's gonna be a new Galaxy record, and uh, we speed ran that bitch. After hearing this and many other comments, someone dared to challenge the humans in a direct confrontation, obviously keeping the safety of the participants as the highest priority. Uh, I have a feeling I already know what they did. You know your men well, after all. You were the one who selected them. Well, since they finished the list of events far quicker than expected, some soldiers presented a couple games and asked to try them out for the remaining seven days. Having heard this, Oscar receives a non-verbal confirmation of his theory. What do you think a bunch of stupid humans in their late twenties would do, given such an opportunity to have fun? Mumbles the colonel to himself. The first day of the game proposed was a fighting competition where teams would be put against each other in a relatively enclosed setting. Each participant was free to choose whatever equipment he wished, and the scope of the game was to eliminate the entirety of the enemy team on a round basis. The only rule was the explicit absence of rules, meaning everything was allowed within safety. It was proposed by the Keltians who, very proud of their idea, were looking forward to humiliating the Terrans by performing ritual dances on their immobilized bodies after scarring a kill during a match. So, uh, they played Team Deathmatch? You know about it. It's the same word your men used, and let's say that they were really enthusiastic. They proceeded to absolutely dominate the other teams, winning all 23 matches they played. Since they knew the Colchians' intentions, they proceeded to, and I quote, default dance on their bodies. Many were outraged by the lack of discipline and respect, but since it was within the rules, they swallowed their pride and kept silent. Uh, what about day two? The second day, the Ryogens suggested a game on a wider scale, where teams would be inserted at random into the expansive area with different territorial features, unarmed and without supplies. The scope of this game was to obtain weapons hidden randomly around the map to fight opponents for a couple hours. Once the time was up, the surviving team would be scored based on performance. So, um, now they're playing a boring battle royale. Oh, you know this as well. Again, it's exactly what your men said. They ended up scoring first with a double the points of the second team on the leadership board. But surprisingly, they complained, and I quote, The map is shit. The loot is placed at random and not in points of interest. There's no gulag, and the play area does not shrink over time. Yet again, some species complained about the humans commenting on their lack of skill, their appearances, and their mothers. The Brian takes a moment to collect his thoughts, then proceeds to empty the entire glass of alcohol. The last game was proposed by the third day by the Quaxar. Fed up by the humans' attitude, they decided to place them in a simulation that would greatly affect their morale and decision-making. Please don't tell me. They chose a setting that would hit close to home. They asked to create a map of roughly 20 kilometers diameter with a human settlement inspired by mid-rise towns of the 21st and 22nd century. Since the whole idea was to demoralize and negatively impress the Terran psyche, they came up with a truly wicked setting. Oh, no. An abandoned, overgrown, and destroyed landscape, infested by humanoid-looking feral and aggressive creatures with low intelligence that rely on numbers to overwhelm their prey. Very scarce resources and equipment would force teams to collaborate as each day becomes more challenging in order to survive until the fifth and last day. So, uh... You created a fucking zombie apocalypse in a real life as a game. Put six humans in it and hope to have a collaboration between species. And all this basically without rules. Well, if you say it like that, it does kind of sound stupid. Nah, never mind. I want to know what happened next. I'm too invested now. The first and second day of the game, they went around the designated area to gather or steal all the resources they could find, leading to the death by starvation of 17 teams by the third day. My morons! So proud of them. The third day, they raided one camp where four species were working together to survive. They actually snuck in at night, seizing all their weapons and even a large civilian motor vehicle with Quaxar managed to find and repair. By the time they woke up, the Terrans had gathered the very large horde of monsters outside the perimeter. They all died as they had nothing but blunt objects to fight the unending waves, while the humans watched and made bets on a nearby building. Trying to contain his laugh, the colonel takes a sip from a glass. 
The fourth day, they spent over 20 hours driving the stolen vehicle around, which was renamed Fucking Hella Awesome Battle Bus by the humans. Having extensively modified it by welding steel cages around it and by mounting an extremely crooked-looking snowplow in front, they drove at full speed, seemingly aimlessly, to shoot everything that moved aside and ran over everything that did not. They even created a makeshift flamethrower and used it to sear to blaze the survivor camp of the remaining teams who were working together. Safe to say that they were the last team standing by the fifth and last day. Uh, okay, so how did it end? Pretty fed up with the constant mocking and humiliation, all the other species requested the creation of a huge monster to finally put a stop to their hubris. What followed was a four-hour-long battle as the humans kept driving at full speed while being chased by the mega-zombie. They eventually ran out of fuel and were all eliminated, but said that they had no regrets and would do it all over again, including the part where they set on fire 20 of their allies. Technically, they never broke any rules as they always acted within a set of safety limits. But it's easy to see where the misunderstanding comes from. Well... To be fair, there is no misunderstanding. They simply got their asses handed to them, and that's why they're bitching. I'll have a talk with my men and take the appropriate measures. Very well. Uh, I, on the other hand, will try my best to mediate the situation. Well, I don't think there's any real possibility of you being kicked out. It's best if you prepare an official apology. After bidding each other farewell, the colonel can finally take a big fat laugh, having endured the urge up until now. He then takes the red phone and starts dialing one number after the other. Sir, <laughs> I think our Brian friends have a new very interesting toy. I'll send you the documentation as soon as I get a hold of it. Uh, no, sir, I would never. I instead propose a strategic transfer of equipment to alternate location. Uh, don't worry, sir. I'm sure our weird friends from the SOF will find a way to move a planet. Uh, it can't be that difficult. End of story. Fluffies, written by Hicks Kem. Spine leader Leaf pulled his armored helmet over his quilled head, pressing spines down along his back. The visor darkened as the connections to his suit were secured, obscuring his face from outside view. He readied himself as the breaching pod drifted from the safety of the heavy battlecruiser towards the largest fragment of a shattered outpost. Damned harvesters, he thought, tightening his grip on his plasma rifle. His short claws tapped rhythmically against the safety, counting the seconds until the pod would pierce the skin of the station. There had been several of these attacks in recent weeks, and each station sent out distress calls as they fell. This was the latest, and also the only one that still had harvester ships attached. Leaf scanned the surface of the station as he floated by, noting the positions of several harvester craft along his planned path. Something about them seemed off in his mind, though it took him nearly a minute to place the problem. Their ships are still here, but there's no other activity. The realization washed over him. Whatever the harvesters had encountered on the station must have been devastating. There were no visible holes where any of the ships might have escaped. Lee frowned at his helmet, then reached up and tapped a claw on the panel on the side. Spine leader, switching to full comms, preparing to breach. Are we getting any radio chatter on any known harvester frequencies? Negative, uh, SL. The night is quiet, came the quick reply to his ear. I am seeing a lot of Harvey ships still embedded. Are we sure that there are no signals? Confirming, SL. We have no signals of any known frequencies. You're seeing something we're not, boss. Just uh, a feeling. My spines are twitching a bit on this one. I'll keep comms open for the duration if there are any live Harveys on my feed. You are ordered to open fire on my position. Slag the station. Sir, that, uh, that'll kill you. You know the rules. Dead harvesters are more important than any of us. Bracing. Leaf wrapped his free hand around a nearby brace bar, then tensed himself against it as the pod tore into the side of the station. The access door before him popped outwards with a hiss, and he raised his plasma rifle into position. Station breached, making entry. His footsteps were slow, steady, and quiet as he made his way down the corridor. Protocol dictated he first find the security office of the station and connect an uplink. He followed the signs on the wall, augmented by his helmet's heads-up display. Methodically, 
He checked doors and corners as he moved, though nothing jumped out at him. Not surprisingly, there was a considerable amount of carnage littering the corridors of the station. This was a relatively robust outpost that, at the confluence of several medium-sized trade routes, his HUD rapidly identified and documented over a dozen species as he went. A few identifications were given lower confidence ratings based on the magnitude of damage the bodies had us sustained. But protocols were protocols, and each of their respective governing bodies would need to be notified when this was over. He stopped outside the security office door. It was mostly closed, but there was a faint shimmer of light coming through. Without moving his feet, Leaf cranes his head slightly to peek through the crack in the door frame. Several monitors were flickering, most of them with little more than static. One of them appeared to still have some functionality, though. He took a steadying breath, readied his rifle, and shoved the door open, swinging the barrel back and forth. He checked rapidly for any signs of an ambush. None came. A minute later, satisfied that the room was indeed empty, he pulled a small device out of his shoulder pocket and plugged it into the nearest data port he could find. Security uplink engaged. Begin data collection and analysis while I check the rest of the station. On a cell, we'll let you know if we see anything you need to know about. Leaf stepped back out of the security office and continued down the main corridor. He entered a central plaza, a place that would ordinarily be filled with hundreds of beings from dozens of worlds, all buying, selling and trading and generally living their lives. He recognized a few common establishments here and there in the wreckage. One food vendor that prided itself on maximum flavor and calorie density and had a number of smiling cartoon versions of different galactic member species seemed considerably less inviting with splashes of different colors of blood all over it. Leaf stood in the plaza and slowly turned, letting the HUD catalog as many individuals as it could. While this was by no means a desirable part of his job, there was a solemn acceptance amongst the Sinis unit that the dead should be made known to their people. After a moment, the hard flash red and outlined a particular body in the mess. Red light, red light, spine leader will engage. Offensive armor mode requested. Half a second later, panels of his armor shifted and slid along their axes, turning his hardened shell into a sharpened array of razor-edged spines running along the length of his arms, legs, and back. He stepped closer to the red outline. His heart flashed a proximity warning, but the ship didn't move. Slowly, he advanced until the outline became unmistakable. Most of the harvester was lying on the ground before him, its limbs bent and broken in gruesome ways, and half of its head crushed into the deck plating. Dead Harvey, can you confirm visuals? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, uh, SL uh, confirmed. Uh, the, the visual of Dead Harvester. Anything on the data uplinks yet that might explain this? Leap's display blinked to alert him to the awaiting video. He brought it up beside the smashed harvester corpse. The video included several angles of harvester breach ships opening up into the main plaza, followed quickly by immediate bloodshed and violence. Then, as usual, the harvesters began to disperse along various corridors. From one corridor, several harvesters suddenly came running back, followed quickly by a mangled corpse hurtling through the air and splattering against the ground where Leaf stood. My the spines! Is there any information on the kind of dangerous megafauna of the station? The check the black market investigation logs. Uh, nothing at all, SL. Whatever that was, it wasn't, uh... Wait a minute. Don't have a lot of time here. Well, it's odd. There's a registered entry for something from a Class 12 death world, but no listing of classification as predator or megafauna or anything. It just says, assigned to school? Leaf glanced at the corridor wall where the corpse had been flung from. The word for school was embossed on the wall in several languages, including... Including our own native language. Check records. Any of our civilians here? Uh, checking armor. Yes, sir, spine leader. There was a group of colonial homesteaders that were spending a couple of weeks here to finish gathering the last few latecomers before they finished their trip and sent all off for... Leaf steeled himself for the probable horrors that he would be facing as he made his way down the corridor towards the school. His HUD lit up with several more outlines, each one confirmed to be a brutally broken harvester corpse. He moved more quickly now, letting his footsteps make real sounds as he wove through the abattoir, 
The lights along the ceiling were fading in this area, likely due to being smashed with monster heads. He flicked the light on on his rifle into place and shined it slowly into the dark corners. The light passed the doorway and Leaf nearly missed it, bringing his heavily armored hand up to block just in time. A savage guttural roar erupted from a heavy metal pipe slammed into his armor over and over. He barely managed to keep to his feet as he moved backwards. His sudden retreat seemed to confuse the uh, creature before him, at least long enough for Leaf to raise a hand and gesture to stop. Code blue, unknown species, unknown intentions, individual is holding at a distance, activating translation matrices. A series of melodic pings rose from the external speaker. Leaf counted them as primes. The creature glared at Leaf, then shouted something unintelligible. His HUD reported progress on the translation. He had to keep it talking. He gestured to himself, and then he said his name through the speaker. Leaf! Leaf! He gestured to the creature, hoping that it would catch on. It glared at him and raised the pipe slightly higher. No, the fluffies! The creature shuffled backwards towards the doorway, never taking its eyes off Leaf. Leaf glanced up as motion caught his eye. A rounded corner mirror near the top of the wall showed him the creature's back. Wait! He shouted through a speaker. Both hands gestured outwards towards the creature. It raised its pipe again and yelled, making a partial lunge at Leaf. SL, what are you doing? That thing is clearly a monster. On its back. It's, it's okay, trust me. Leaf held up both hands, gesturing for steadiness. The creature stared intently with fierce, deeply predatory eyes. Leaf pushed down an ancient instinct with everything he had and slowly disengaged his helmet. Spine leader, stop, came the shrinking voice from the headset side as Leaf pulled the helmet free and shook his head slightly, letting his head spines loosen up and spike out towards the cool air in the station. The creatures lowered the pipe slowly. You big fluffy? Leaf pointed at himself again. Leaf, he pointed to the creature. The creature pointed to the south with the pipe. Jess, it pointed back. Leaf, fluffy leaf. Leaf nodded. He tapped his head spines, then held his hands close together. Hopefully this gets through. Jess considered for a moment, then tucked the pipe into a loop in the garments. It stepped forward slowly, never taking its eyes off Leaf, and grabbed the helmet. Leaf, in the primal part of his brain, knew not to make sudden moves. So three human English, the creature shouted into the helmet, then shoved it back to Leaf. Leaf pulled it back on, keeping the visor open. The creature stepped back. Leaf tried talking, surprised to hear the wholly different language coming out of the helmet speaker. I am spine leader Leaf. I was sent here to investigate the harvester attack. Did you do all of this? He pointed to the ripped and torn bodies of harvesters littering the area near the doorway. They came for the fluffies, so I stopped them. The fluffies are saved. What are fluffies? Are you talking about the young creatures on your back? Jess's eyes flashed with anger. She glanced over her shoulder at the mirror, then quickly grabbed her pipe and threw it, shattering the mirror. Nobody hurts the Fluffies. I don't want to hurt her. Uh, fluffies, I just... Here. Leaf trolled a series of soft sounds from his snout by passing the vocalizer. Jess winced slightly as several tiny, spiny heads popped out over her shoulders. Each one trolled a higher-pitched version of the Leaf's own song. Jess visibly relaxed. I knew... You're a big Fluffy. Take the baby Fluffies home. No mama Fluffies left. Leaf nodded. We will get you all off the station. We will get you home as well. Jess whispered over her shoulder, then held her arms forward. Two dozen babies, each with downy versions of the same spines Leaf had, and all much sharper claws rushed along Jess's arms. Leaf brought his own face closer for their inspection, and they responded by climbing onto him and wrapping their claws around whatever spikes were nearby. Follow me, we'll get my boarding pod and get back to the ship. Half an hour later, Leaf stood at the observation window of the medical bay, watching the surgical bots tend to Jess's innumerable wounds. Another officer stepped up beside him. Spine leader, we finished the analysis of the security logs. In summary, the harvesters came aboard the station and killed almost everyone. But then she saw the younglings were in danger. So she gathered them up on her back, ripped up some metal conduit off the wall, and just started killing every harvester that approached. She made enough noise that they all kept coming from all over the station until she finally just killed them all. And she never once turned her back to any of them. She... Uh, she kept the babies safe. Yes, spine leader. 
Which brings us to the next point. She's in there right now being put back together by the finest medical technology because her body did not evolve to carry babies with claws and spikes like ours did. Her body never evolved the thicker outer dermis, never evolved the reduced nerve sensitivity in those layers. Nothing. Her skin felt every baby claw and spine like knives being dragged into her back. She must be quite an incredible being then, to endure so much to protect the young. Sir, yes, sir. But the council is terrified. Leaf turned away from the glass to look at the junior officer in the eye. Terrified? What could they possibly be terrified of? Well, uh, she ignored all the pain and dealt incredible violence out to two dozen of the most feared species in the galaxy. I saw the videos from our own feeds. She even pushed you back in full offensive armor. The council worries what such a creature would do to protect themselves if they do this much for complete strangers. Tell the council respectfully their spines have grown into their brains if they do not see the good fortune before us. We must send envoys from the entire galactic society to meet with the humans. We absolutely must place them amongst our friends. You said it yourself. If they'd go as far as she did for a stranger, what would they be capable of for a friend? The council will object. Tell them her words, then. Tell them uh, nobody hurts the Fluffies. End of story. There is a new legend on the horizon. Blueberry Cat has taken the T6 Patreon spot. Thank you very much, and I am sure that I speak for everyone when I say that. For Arnholtz, Bushmaster177, and Leslie517. Thank you very much.